Hello my friends, hello my life warriors, wherever you are in the world, I do hope you're having a good day. Uh, this is podcast number 16 uh, with an old friend of mine, Amy McEwen, uh, who is a mental health expert. It's a short podcast today, but very informative. Uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast and yeah, I hope you have a great day. Anyway, have a good one. Peace. Okay. Hello, my friends. Hello, my life warriors, wherever you are in the world. I do hope you're having a good day. Uh, This is episode, oh my Lord, number, I think, 15 or 16 of uh, the Day In, Day Out podcast. Today, I have an old friend of mine for many a year. I've I've known her for about 17, oh God, 17 years. (laughs) Long time, long time. Yes, I... Young Amy, uh, how are you today, my friend? I am good. I am good. It's a Friday. It yeah. is the last day of January. I am looking forward to spring arriving when it eventually does. <laughs> uh, well, you know what? I've got to say we have been, how can I say, blessed in comparison to what the last couple of winters have been like in like uh, good old blighty. <laughs> I think that it might be. Yeah. Uh, put it this way, no beast for the east. So yeah, let's be happy with that. But yeah, February is just around the corner, literally. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, if you'll be so kind, can't you tell the lovely people out there uh, what you do and what makes you so special in this world of worlds? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. What do I do? I do a number of different things. Um, Mm. But I guess what I'm most known for work wise is I specialize in health and mental health. Mm -hmm. So I've spent 20 years putting different types of health and mental health programs into all different sizes of organizations in all different ways. And so I write a weekly blog on LinkedIn on health and mental health to share my knowledge. Mm. And I kind of uh, just starting out after baby number of two doing bits of consulting around that. So I'm helping a large FTSE 100 at the moment writing their international health and mental health strategy. Oh. Uh, before that, I was at Ernst & Young where I put in their um, health and mental health strategy across the UK, mm-hmm. uh, working with employee relations through that. But I mean, they're not all big organizations. They're smaller organizations. I did a mental health tech company. So all, all bits and pieces around that sphere. Ah, I see. Uh, with regards to the whole sort of mental health sphere which you're in right now, uh, been in for ever since I've known you. Uh, what? <laughs> yeah, long time yeah. now. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Um, like this is the thing. Uh, some people say there's trends going on. Like from when you started, what was it like? Can sort of compared to today. Well, that's a really good question. So I think the word trend is probably fair. Mm. So, I mean, as you will remember, you know, I fell into the world of health and mental health and and work because of my father. He was a psychiatrist. And so mental health for me has always been kind of part of the family business. Mm. And uh, I started working uh, on putting tech mental health solutions into companies in my early 20s. And given I'm the big 4-0 this year, then... uh, (laughs) Believe it or not, I know it's hard to believe, you know. Um, so yes, yeah, so but in those days, uh, no one wanted to hear about mental health. Um, I got laughed out of pretty much every boardroom in the city for even mentioning it, uh, very aggressively usually. And usually the person who'd been most aggressive uh, was the one who showed me to the door, 
who'd quietly sort of say on the way out, oh, I think it's great you're doing this. You know, my daughter's got anorexia or my wife's mm. an alcoholic or I've suffered from depression, having just completely derailed their organization doing anything about it. So we've moved from those days to, as you said, it seems now that everybody is talking about mental health <laughs> all the time, <laughs> which yeah. is great, but it's also not great. So uh, jokes aside, it's wonderful for stigma mm. and awareness and stigma raising and stuff like that. However, as you would have seen from my blogs and vlogs, I think a, most, a lot of people talking mm. are talking utter rubbish about it or are just trying to make a living out of it or sharing their story uh, in a way that I find a bit... Um, frustrating because you know we are talking a lot about it but I still don't see a lot of organizations doing a huge amount other than just talking about it mm. and it seems now you can't be a celebrity unless you've had at least three different diagnosed mental health illnesses that you've coped with along your way you know or or even my favorite is sort of these like bankers who are selling yeah. like multi-million pound pensions having never cared about their own or other people's mental health who are now talking at mental health conferences about how important it is to them now that they've got a multi-million pound, you know, multi-multi-million pound pension that they're now sat on. Oh. So, he says it best, more money, more problems, come on now. <laughs> yeah, but it's just very interesting that, you know, at the end of their career, they're now yeah. entering a career in mental health, having financed themselves through being a banker. But that's just me being cynical, what can I say? <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, and with regards to like, with regards to like, when you had bankers and like being like basically kicked out of boardrooms, like what was like one of the sort of most sort of frustrating twinges or like about that? Well, so the the, the two things I'd say. So firstly, I just you know, I was in my twenties trying to sell a product and create a business. So actually, you yeah. know, not being taken seriously. And actually, people not wanting to spend money like they did, they didn't. I, I mean, in truth, I still don't think, despite all the talk, a lot of people are spending a lot of money yet. But mm. um, it was just frustrating because it was an issue no one seemed to take seriously. Now everyone seems to take it seriously, but everyone has suddenly overnight become an expert on that. So yeah, that was frustrating. I think the other thing is, is that, you know, there's a very easy way in this to kind of bang on about needing an ROI or a return on investment. And I still mm -hmm. think it's very difficult for one intervention to show that, which is a big challenge where it's quite easy. I still don't see a lot of people selling well-being or health services who are able to prove how their service actually can make money for an organization at the end. And I still think that's something that hasn't quite been cracked yet. Right. Um, yeah, I find that a little bit like... I understand the sort of need where companies are going, yes, we need to concentrate on this. But um, when it comes down to it, uh, many of the times, it seems like they're putting on a plaster or like instead of like treating like the wound itself, it's like, there you go, we've done this, off you go. We've like taken care of the mental health issues which go on in our organization. But it just sometimes, um, it falls way short than it should, if you know what I mean. Um, the health and well-being of like, people who are working in their offices, working in their batteries, working in any organization is paramount. And especially these days where it just seems like, yeah, there's a lot of pressures out there. 
Well, I think that's true. And I think as a society, we've just, quote, discovered mental health. So I think if you're in an organization, I, I also think that there's a lot of people selling health and well-being services who are talking mm. about the big issue and the crisis of mental health and stuff. And I try and steer clear from those sorts of words because is it a crisis? Possibly. You know, mm. I think banging on about how big a problem something is isn't necessarily the best way to actually sell services. Yeah. Um, but what I do see, so two things. Firstly, organizations, um, it is much easier to buy in a bit of mindfulness and train up a couple of mental health first aiders and write a policy that sits on your website and think that you've done mental health. Mm. Now, and you know from my blogs and vlogs, that's not really what I think is going to actually solve things. You know, if you really want to, and this is the approach the health and safety executive have been talking about for a while, you know, actually look at your culture. And you're not going to change culture by having a couple of senior people talking about their mental health issues and two mental health first aiders. You actually need to look at, you know, what your performance management system's based on. I think, sadly, people respond best to what they get measured on and what they get paid for. So if you've got, you know, a, a performance management system that's based purely on sales, Right. Sending everybody off for an hour on mindfulness and taking them out to the same structured, stressful targets isn't really going to help. And so what you see is, is the sort of sticking plaster is things that are quite easy to implement around the sides, not actually looking at kind of how you weave it in across policies, across an organizational culture, but also ultimately what people are measured on. I think when people get measured on their own health and mental health, or the mental health and mental health of people on their team or that they manage, then that's when you actually get culture change, not just a few sessions of bits and pieces. Mm. The second thing I'd say is, is that as a society, yes. we have never really cared about Well, that's unfair. We've taken money out of mental health services for 30 mm. years now. And the reason we've taken money out of mental health services for 30 years is that mental health wasn't sexy. It was very easy for governments to slice money away from mental health because actually it was easy to do. Like in the 80s, if mm. you look, mental health services were sliced to a bone. Mental health hospitals and trusts were selling off their land. They were selling off it to car parks. They were selling off. That was a quick way to raise money in mental health. And you know, my father was managing um, director of the Tudor Royal Hospital when we yeah. were in Manchester. He was the medical director there. It's now part of the private group. A lot of the private hospitals, including the Cheetah Royals in those days, their business model was building secure units for mental health mm. because the NHS was closing them so quickly that they knew that there were patients, about 10% of patients you needed to do something with that you couldn't just ship off. So the NHS would close units down. They would take a lot of people out to care in the community where they were managed by kind of third-party providers. Mm. Uh, but then there's about 10% of patients who were never well enough really to function. And so they, uh, the business model of private hospital groups, such as the Cheadle Royal or the Priory, was to build secure units because the NHS would pay for beds. So, I mean, you know, you're talking about something that for 30 years we've been taking serious money out of any NHS provision, which is why you read all these crazy stories about, you know, poor anorexic being treated 250 miles away from home. Yeah. It's because we've spent 30 years closing down units, closing down hospitals, taking money out of things, and then suddenly mental health has just become this really trendy thing in the last two, three years. Mm. Uh, but, but actually, you know, it, it's kind of zeitgeist and trend. You know, we've, we've no one cared about it, or not no one, but it was a 
politically unloved thing that actually, you know, if you look at NHS spend in the last 30 years, it was all on things like cancer care and this and that. You could take money away from mental health and put it into other things. I mean, it's good that it's coming back, but it's interesting that, you know, we we say it's really important and such a problem and a crisis. Now, is it a crisis? I don't know. Is it more, are more people coming forward because it's talked about more? I don't know. But is it a crisis because we've been actually closing down units and, you know, there's nowhere for people to get treatment now? I don't know. You know? Mm. No, like, this is the thing. I'd say many a person would be surprised that the NHS, like, they're closing down all of their sort of, like, units to help with mental health. And then basically relying on the sort of private sector in many respects where they then pay for beds at a great, I don't know what type of expense that would like, come to, to then run their mental health, like, well, mental health units on that level. And when you say secure units, that doesn't really sound like to me, when you say secure, that is, like that says very dangerous, or it says like criminal in some in many respects, but I. Well, not dangerous. I think you gotta be careful. It means, yeah, no, that, it means yeah. people are ill and they need more healthcare. You know, there might be an element of danger in that potentially, but I mean, these are these are this is an illness, yeah. But I mean, yes, you say you're surprised, but that's what was happening. But it just wasn't hitting the headlines or the newspapers because no one really showed that much interest in mental health. Mm. Um, you know, we, the the government policy was care in the community, and that was a distinct policy which was cheaper for the government. So let's take down people from units and stuff, put them into the community. They can live in sort of halfway houses where they're being checked out on by private organisations generally that would pop in once or twice a day and then the people that weren't well enough to live in those places would then be shipped out to the kind of private sector that's that's what and we know carrying the community as a policy you know it has been pretty much a failure you know all of the kind of very sad stories that you occasionally see about someone being stabbed in a knife attack by some unwell person who shouldn't probably have been out. You know, those are the sorts of uh, a legacy of the care in the community, I think. But to me, there's also a big difference between that side of stuff and mm. what you're seeing going on in the workplace. Like what you see in the workplace is, you know, most people who are working are functional people. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in the workplace, you know. Like um, yeah. when we talk about workplace mental health and the crisis that is workplace mental health, what most people are talking to, talking about in that situation is sort of mild stress, anxiety, depression, panic mm. attacks, bipolar. You know, maybe some medium to severe, but it's generally well managed because otherwise people wouldn't be able to hold down jobs. No, very true. Um, yeah. So with regards... And that, by the way, is also the narrative that I think is quite unhealthy. If you get back to the start of the, our conversation, yeah. you know, mental health is everywhere. But what people are talking about, you know, these celebrities and footballers and royals and highly successful leaders, you know, these people are top of their game, which is why they're talking about it. Yeah. So, yes, they've had periods of ill health, and I don't want to devalue anyone's experience or mental illness. But these aren't people who are you know, suffering long-term, very severe 
illnesses. Otherwise, the reality is is that they probably wouldn't have got to the top of their game in football or banking or whatever. Because, you know, these are functional people. That you can be mentally unwell and functional. But, the, you know, the people that are talking the most about it, I believe when you unpick it, it's the more milder forms of mental illness they're talking about. Mm. Like, this is the thing. I know with the, like, big celebrity waves coming like, through with mental health at this moment in time, it's somewhat, I would say, it may have reduced the stigma in some respects, but, like, in certain groups, but I still think there is still some type of stigma there where people don't actually come forward and like seek out the help sometimes they possibly need on their either a daily or like monthly basis, like a day-to-day basis. Well, again, you know, I don't want to say two things again because I know I've answered the last <laughs> question. Two things, two things popped into my mind then. Uh, firstly... I hear a lot of organizations saying they want people to come forward and disclose. And my yeah. question is why? You know, mm. if someone's quite happily managing their own condition and quite comfortable and quite happy for it to be private, why are we forcing people to come forward? Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, I kind of, you know, I think we need to create a society where people, if they want to, can come, come forward. But actually, if they don't want to, they don't have to. You know, it's kind of... You can't expect someone to treat you differently if you haven't disclosed the condition, obviously. But I also feel like, you know, everyone feels they have to talk about everything. It's not, you know, that's not really me either, really. And, uh, you know, back to the point we were making before, if you need to go and seek help, you know, I think my priority is making sure that the discussion around stigma and awareness is focusing on actually making sure that there are people to go to. Because what we hear a lot of, uh, and the Mental Health First Aid and other places uh, encourage this, you know, if you want to seek help, then go get it. But the reality is, is that, you know, I've just told you, we closed down all the secure units. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. talking therapy waiting times can be yeah. much and months and months Mm. and online therapy isn't really up to scratch yet so I think you know for me my biggest concern about what's happening at the moment is it's great people are talking about it but there's this very unhealthy narrative that if you talk about it that's all you need to do or you can just go and get help but you know we don't have places for people to be signposted to so if you look at most of my blogs it's like no if you're an organization if Mm. you are going to start talking about it then invest in some proper support and not just some proxy EAP that you can send people through for a few sessions of counseling and you feel like you've done the right thing. Like, actually, I see a lot of organizations who start down the track off, we're going to do a really big awareness and stigma mm-hmm. campaign. And then suddenly loads of people come forward and they haven't got the policies or the processes or the support to actually help these people. Yeah. Or, you know, we send people forward to the NHS. Well, most GPs are not trained particularly well in mental health. Mental health wasn't really covered in GP training. So mm. they're either sent home with an antidepressant prescription or they're stuck on a month-long, months-long waiting list for talking therapy. But that, to me, is not a very effective way of dealing with the crisis of mental health, you know. Mm. We either end up with people on drugs that they possibly shouldn't be on. And I say this from the perspective of being a psychiatrist's daughter. My father spent the majority of his career re-diagnosing people who've been given the wrong diagnosis or changing people's drugs uh, because they've been put on the wrong thing or they put on too much of the wrong thing or they should never have been put on that. You know, GPs, if you think through the model of a GP, a GP has five minutes to make a diagnosis and then puts you on pills. That's the model of physical illness, you know. Mm. Actually, that's, that's really not what mental illness is about. 
Well, you know, some people, yes, succeed very well on, on drugs, but actually a drug is a sort of, my father always used to say, an antidepressant is fantastic for getting somebody off their bed into therapy. You know, mm. it's not a long-term solution. And, and actually, you know, they can be very, very debilitating side effects, suicide, suicidal yeah. ideologies. And, you know, the same pill, I remember my father saying as well, that sometimes with some of his patients, they'd need two of a pill for a dose. Yeah. Other would need half or a quarter of a pill. You know, there's quite a lot of putting people on, making sure they're on the right dosage, making mm -hmm. sure they're on the right drugs, making sure that, you know, and none of that really happens through the primary kind of heart care GP system. Not for want of kind of trying, just because mm. I don't think that GPs have that level of training in mental illness. And also you can't do much in a five minute GP appointment. No, uh, because like when, like with you talking about the different doses of medication and stuff like this, sometimes it's not even medication which is needed. It could just be like sitting down, having a conversation with someone who's there to actually listen to them. And, help and five minutes in a GP is not going to do that. Yeah. Nine months on waiting list for therapy is not going to help, which is why so many people end up on antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs and things like that. Mm. And you know, my concern is just that a lot of those aren't being managed properly. You know, you don't have the, the drug reviews. You don't have people managing you on and off them. Sometimes people stop taking them. You know, they can take weeks to work. So, so you know, this whole kind of, oh, we must talk about it, you just go and get help, is important yeah. that people... But that can only be matched with the right services being there and my concern is that at the moment they're not really mm. like this is the thing like the information you're giving me right now like i've got to say um how can i say i'm quite ignorant to a lot of the things which go on with regards to mental health in like systems and so sort of in society and like i know there are one of i know a couple of people who suffer with their sort of own anxiety and basically some of their mental health issues but it's one of those things if you like many of the times if you weren't told they had an issue you'll never know they had an issue it's just one of those things where you go yeah you can look at someone and go yeah they look perfectly fine to me uh they've got nothing nothing physically wrong with them they outwardly because you see them sort of 80 percent of the time being fine and that sort of 20% or that the really sort of bad bits of the 5% which you'd never see because it's either behind closed doors or it's just sort of it seems to be always put to one side and hidden away as open as people are talking about it it just gets put to one side if you get what I mean well firstly you know if you look at, at physical illness, there's a lot of people walking around with long-term chronic physical conditions or, mm. or even, you know, illnesses or sad diagnoses that happen, you know, that, that some who really want to openly share about them, some that don't, you know. And actually, I think for me with mental health, you don't need everyone to disclose everything. No. It's just making sure that people don't feel that they can't. But, yeah. you know, with physical illness, as well, you'll have friends who are suffering from physical illnesses and conditions that you didn't know anything about, mm. you know, because they either don't impact on their life very much or they only flare up or they don't want to share. Yeah, so I think for me, it's making sure that mental health is the same. People don't be ashamed of telling stuff or that they can't, but, but that their choice is very much there. So I don't believe that everyone should 
should feel that because they have a mental health condition, they have to talk about it. And also, I mean, I guess the difference between physical and mental health is the society mm. stuff. And this is where um, literacy training, like mental health first aid or mind or other things doing that can be great in that mental health, and even now um, in the media, is, um, you know, when you think mental health, you think of Jack Nicholson and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, yeah? Yes. And even now, I mean, I haven't watched it and I deliberately didn't watch it. But, you know, the Joker that came out last year, yeah. a lot of people told me that I should watch that. And I chose not to. I don't know whether I'll change my mind. But because to me, it was a very, um, from what I read, and this is based on not seeing it, it was a very kind of theatrical and, uh, you know, kind of descent into mental illness, you know. And I think it's all the, the negative stereotypes around mental illness that I don't like was why I thought I would irritate me if I saw it, you know, kind of. I don't know whether that's true because, like I said, I haven't seen it. So so we're coming from a kind of uh, a situation where people don't know a lot about mental illness because mm -hmm. they've never really been taught about it. Most people's general awareness of physical conditions like cancer or lung disease or or, or Crohn's disease or gastroenteritis is much higher than most people's knowledge of what mental health conditions are. And that's something that kind of entertainment and the media have always played on. So that kind of stigma side needs shifting um, mm. in that way. So people do feel that they can talk about it and they're not going to be judged. Like if you say to somebody that you're bipolar, then there's a lot of assertions that come from that person's lack of knowledge about what bipolar is or isn't. And especially with things like schizophrenia, and stuff like that um and also until recently people i mean the evidence still shows that if you told the workplace you had a mental health condition you were more likely to be stigmatized against than if you didn't yeah but that's partly societal so yes i think there is work to be done as a society in talking about it but i think the current narrative of all you need to do and talk is fine is the wrong one mm. and i also think you know we shouldn't be forcing people to talk about stuff all the time. Just, you know, it's just getting it to the same level where if you can want to share, you want to, you know? Mm. Like with regards to, as you mentioned briefly talking about, um, not sort of conversations with like just individuals, but what do you think sort of conversations with like different organizations, excuse me, different organizations or people who can actually put plans into place? Are there the right, do you feel the right conversations are going on right now? Or is it something which no one sort of broached yet? So my experience mm. is that most organizations I speak to want to do something. There's a lot of will to do something and there's a lot of will to do the right thing. Okay. But I think the challenge is, is that most people don't really know what the right thing is. There's also a not, and you saw this in one of my blogs, a multitude of people who've just entered the health, mental health and well-being market who are selling their services as experts and you've got to do this and you've got to do that, who are basically promising organizations a lot for very little. Like, you know, the silver bullet around mental health. If you want to seriously take mental health well, yeah. you know, you need to look at, you know, Everything, how you recruit people, your culture, job role, job fit, uh, what providers you've got, how you put in an HR process to manage absence, how you make sure that your policies align up. You know, the culture change stigma bit is a big piece of work. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there telling us, so a lot of organizations, 
know they need to do something, but their challenge is knowing what to do. Right. And feeling a little bit overwhelmed by the plethora of solutions and well-being experts and this and that and so on, all offering them different things. And then not, not having the skills yet to discern what to buy or how to put something together. Mm. And that's not helped with the plethora of experts promising that if they just bought this magical solution, then everything will go. So I think it's, um, I think it's a real challenge. I, don't, I think most people, both people selling services and people in organizations are very well-meaning. Yeah. I just think that there's not a very mature market with people who really know what's going to work and what isn't. And, and if you think to most of the people buying um, uh, services or putting in place health and mental health and well-being solutions, they tend to be HR people. Mm. or health and safety people or diversity and inclusiveness people or um you know uh, or you know variety of such right. um, they tend to be very good at hr diversity inclusiveness and health and safety but when it comes to health and mental health and yeah. some knowledge of what's going on and clinical stuff and how to challenge a health provider and this sort of stuff they're not they don't have those skills because that's not what they are so what we're seeing is health and mental health and well-being has become a thing. Mm. And so you know, the, org the organization wants to do something because they want to be seen to looking after their staff or helping people or this or that. You know, who, who does this get put down to? It gets put down to HR. You know, but my real challenge is, is do people in HR have the skills to be writing health and mental health programs or looking through what their health providers are providing and challenging them and stuff? And my 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 answer is is often no to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like this is the thing, if you could ch like if you if I dubbed you with the power to change uh, certain things or improve certain things, which what would you what would be one thing you would change? So are you talking about within organisations or society or the NHS? Um, I'll say at this moment in time, within organizations, because when you're talking about HR people, health and well-being people, uh, like basically different heads in organization, which for me doesn't seem terribly clear how they can really focus on mental health, if you get what I mean, because it's not their specialist. So do you remember, you know, kind of D&I has kind of quite, you know, rightly found its way to the board and there's usually hmm. a DNI person. Okay. I think we need well-being to be treated or health, mental health and well-being to be treated on its own as its own body, you know, with working with all of those other stakeholders. I think the challenge with it sitting on its, you know, under one of those yeah. is that it becomes shaped by whether it's sat by. So I'd like us to get to the point where health, mental health and well-being is seen as a board level issue with a board level sponsor, but the person who's responsible for it is, it's, you know, it's treated like DNI. It's mm. not treated under anything else or anybody else's role. And that the people who are doing those sorts of roles, and you know, we're sort of talking about a market still very much in its infancy, but the people doing those sorts of roles have really got good skills in health, mental health, organizational health, how that fits into the organization, the numbers behind it. They're not just some very well-meaning HR person that's decided to do something on well-being because that's what everyone's doing now. Yeah. I think you know. I think it becoming a board-level issue with you know CFO support, you know proper money to do something properly from kind of education and promotion all the way through to 
what you do to make sure that you've got proper health support for people. But that, you know, whoever, you know, and that is a standalone thing, working with lots of different stakeholders, but with proper funding, that would be where I would, you know, if I could wave my magic wand, as opposed to it being a sort of DNI and well-being role, mm. which tends to turn into DNI with mental health, or health and safety and well-being, which tends to turn into health and safety with a bit of well-being activity around the sides. Or, you know, if it's run from HR or employee relations, mm -hmm. it often turns into a mental health policy that's actually, you know, kind of policy and process and system. So you need all of these people inputting into it to make it work, but it needs to be its kind of own thing woven through how you do stuff in the way that diversity and inclusiveness is becoming that now. Mm. No. Like organizations are having to start to change their business and their business models mm. around diversity and inclusiveness. You know, this is an issue that's been going on about 10 years now, but now you're starting to see corporate, you know, businesses change. Likewise, you know, the latest thing is climate change. You're seeing, because this is a political issue now, organizations are starting to reluctantly, in some cases, have to change their business around sustainability and climate change. Yeah, for well-being to succeed and health and mental health to succeed, then we need to see that. I think that will be the next wave. And I think that's where we'll end up for two very simple reasons. Firstly, yes. we're not spending enough money on healthcare in this country. So, okay. um, you know, how the NHS each year, it's more targets missed, more pressures. The NHS is basically running out of money and as we grow older as a population that's going to become more so like most of the people who are getting you know value or supported by the nhs at the moment are kind of older people or pregnant people or children mm. you know when you're kind of working age the nhs isn't apart from acute conditions you know that's where cuts are biting and also you know large organizations are relying on the NHS to look after the health and mental health of their staff. Mm. If we end up in a situation where organizations, as part of their business model, are commissioning their own health and mental health care and making sure they've got proper support, then what that will do is... Hello? 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 Oh. The front door's just open. Can you pause it? Uh, right. Go, 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 go. Waiting here patiently. Oh, hopefully everything's a okay. <laughs> These oh, it's very strange. The, the front door just opened itself, which is not good. You live on a street, and no, sorry. So what I was going to say was, with two things. Firstly, the NHS, you know, is is underfunded, as most yeah. healthcare models are. But secondly, for organisations, right, at the moment they're relying on the NHS. If, mm. you take, if you take a sick day, you're told to go to your doctor. There'll come a point where organisations realise that actually it's going to be a good business investment for them to invest in proper health and mental health care because it means that employees are less likely to take time off. And if they are taking time off, then they can be you know, looked after better. And as we become an ageing workforce, then actually, yes, that's you know because to be blunt health insurance policies don't really cover much for working age people so yeah. we end up in a situation where because nhs cuts and because funding you know becomes around the, the young and the old demographic groups 
Mm. I, I think also politically, governments will get to a point where they're like, look, you are large organizations. You know, you employ thousands of people. If we give you kind of tax incentives to buy your own and commission your own healthcare, then that's going to take pressure off the NHS. So I think that's ultimately where we'll end up, you know. But at the moment, most people talking about well-being are talking about very light approach of nutrition and fitness and this and that and stuff they're not talking about organizations commissioning proper health and mental health care mm. it's light but not deep i see ah. yeah and there's a lot of people who you know kind of have create are trying to create careers in selling nutritional advice to companies or this or that you know and or you know <laughs> yoga classes or pilates or fruit bowls <laughs> or access to this you know, yeah they're, they're like, well, that's where the market is at the moment. It's still, you know, sort of, I call it fluff, which is, you know, quite derogatory, and I don't mean to insult anybody, but you know, it's, and it's because I come from a clinical background, health and mental health. You know, it's not, mm. it's not quite, you know, flash dances in the cafeteria. Understood. Like yes, uh, what I've got to say is, yeah, thank you uh, very much for your time and information, Amy. Look, it, you have been. Superb. I've got to say it. What I would simply say to you is, I uh, love the blogs you put out. I like, I love the information you put out. Um, yeah, by all means, I'd say you should do a podcast yourself. Get some people out there. Uh, yeah, you would rock it in no time at all. Uh, purely, simply. Oh, well, thank you. I think about that. Maybe that's the 2021 thing. You know. Oh, uh, like this thing. Like 2021. Do it. Do it. Why wait? Do it now. Go for it, I say. Go for it. <laughs> but yeah. Um, ooh, yeah, I got to say, yeah, thank you. It's been appreciated. Uh, with regards to where people can find you, uh, what is like a link or website? Well, so uh, I'm in the process of doing my own website, which I hope to get up this spring by Easter, which I'm, is going to be a kind of repository of all my blogs and vlogs to try and change the, um, just to give people information, because like I said, it's a new market. So a lot of it is about sharing what I know in a way that kind of organizations can pick and change bits. So that will be up and that will be amymcuan.com. Until then, the best place to get me is LinkedIn. You know, that's what I use weekly, daily. You can email me, you can message me. Uh, and also, you know, I, my aim is at least one piece of content a week. Okay, no problem. I will do, I'll also put uh, your details in the description below. Uh, keep me informed when you get that website live. And I, yeah, I, will. I will tell the world, get them all out there to come along, see you have a conversation and yeah, uh, maybe this is the stepping stones to make things better, make things oh, greater. Well, I hope so. And thank you, Miwa, thank you for the opportunity. No worries, pleasure. Okay, bear with me one sec.